Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's the 26th of November, and uh, we're going to probably put this out sometime next week just to, I don't know, I don't think anyone wants to think about this stuff over Thanksgiving break, but we have a great guest today, um, and he's going to talk about something that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, which is the Asian American vote and, you know, like what that means and if it's a thing and, you know, how people classify it and have thought about it throughout the past 20 or so years. So with me today is Teku Lee. He's a professor of political science and law at Cal Berkeley. And um, yeah, he's, I don't know, he's done pretty much all the studying that one can do about this one topic. And we wanted to have an expert on, so it wasn't just me and Tammy and Andy uh, pontificating. <laughs> pontificating and dropping takes all the time. And so if you are a person who likes evidence and data, like you should listen to the show. If you're somebody who just likes people spec wildly speculating and, you know, dropping their opinions, then um, listen to the other shows. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope uh, by the time this airs, everyone's had a, a excellent and safe Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Yeah, I guess the safe part, it used to be like, don't drive drunk, you know, <laughs> or like yeah. that was the safe part, or like, <laughs> don't get in a fight in the, in the airport. And now it's like, you know, don't, don't sit too close to grandma. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. We, we used to tell people not to drink alone, but maybe this, this Thanksgiving, it's okay to drink alone. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be preferable. Um, all right, so uh, can you just tell, give me, give me a sense of when you started studying this topic of the AAPI vote. Sure. So I, I've been uh, at this topic since, um, well, it was for a report in 2000. So I guess I've been at it probably since 1999 or so. I was invited by an LA-based organization, LEAP, Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. Uh, LEAP took the lead and putting out at that time, I think the best, um, to use your uh, to use your terms, the best uh, kind of evidence-based publications on the state of uh, AAPIs. It used to be an annual uh, publication covering different aspects of uh, the AAPI community. And I was uh, invited at that time by Paul Ong, who was a professor at um, UCLA, and Don Nakanishi, who was also a professor at UCLA, to take a look at the available uh, public opinion data on Asian Americans at that time and do sort of a summary report. And, you know, the first challenge for me was to actually find any available public opinion uh, data on Asian Americans. And then I stumbled on a number of uh, polls that the LA Times had done. So happy to find that and then wrote up a report. And uh, the topic has been uh, interesting me ever since, uh, ever since then, but I started in about 2000. Um, yeah. Well, why was it interesting to you? Like, what about it drew you, you know, outside of the fact that you yourself are also Asian American? Was there, was there some sort of seed that, or some sort of thought that you had that might be true that you wanted to prove out? Yeah. I mean, you know, from a, from a social science, political science standpoint, I think Asian Americans are fascinating, um, uh, for, for many reasons. I think one of them is just the sheer diversity of the community. So, um, it's at least a puzzle that people talk about Asian Americans or Asian Americans of Pacific Islanders as a single group when in fact they cover such an incredible diversity of dozens and dozens of different sort of ethnic communities, each of which, you know, have their own culture, many have their own languages, their, you know, distinct sort of, you know, religions and all the way down to, you know, uh, cuisines and, you know, um, whatnot. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that they're considered to be a group for the purposes of, you know, like data collection, census classification, and, and so on, when in fact they 
uh, actually have so many different groups within it. So I wanted to see the extent to which there actually were some kind of common interests or common patterns describing, you know, the political views of Asian Americans as a group and the ways in which they're actually really different because you have to take kind of the, this aggregation of the community uh, seriously. So it's that kind of tension between the two, which really kind of caught my eye. And then the other thing which really caught my eye is the extent to which Asian Americans as a group had just completely um, uh, increased over a very short period of time. So over a couple of generations, we went from, you know, Asian Americans being, uh, meeting uh, an Asian American being a really kind of rare occurrence, especially like between the coasts to, you know, today where, you know, 6% of the U.S. population are Asian Americans and you go to places like New York and California and it's way higher than that. So that kind of change over time, I think, gives you a really rare opportunity to see like, what works and what doesn't work in terms of the institutions that we have in the U.S., the kind of over, uh, you know, like the prevailing ideologies that we have about, you know, who does what politically, who does what socially and economically and so on. So um, it, it's, um, it's what social scientists would call kind of like an exogenous shock. So you take a system the way it is, and then you suddenly flood it with something new, like something different, like in a way, the, the increase of uh, AAPIs and also, you know, Latinx Americans are sort of like a, like a demographic earthquake to the American political social system. And it's really interesting to try to see, like, what stays the same, but what changes in response to that sort of demographic earthquake, if you will. Yeah, yeah, like especially post 1965, and like you know, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit, and about how to sort of classify different types of Asian Americans, which uh, you know you get into and. In, the book that that you wrote with a few co-authors, but um, mm -hmm. I, I I wanted to talk about that book a little bit here. So it's called uh, Asian American Political Participation. You wrote it with three co-authors, is that right? Jane, John, uh, Karthik, uh, Ram uh, Ramkrishana. I'm sorry uh, mm -hmm. for that, and Janelle <laughs> Wong. And uh, it it is a very comprehensive look at you know the last twenty or so years, I would say of of uh of asian american voting i think the, the the book was published in 2011 is that right or 2012 that's right 2011 yeah um and so it it doesn't have the last two cycles but i do think that there's like sort of this history that that's laid out that i found totally fascinating and really actually instructive in a lot of the stuff that i've been thinking about in um, writing as well so um, I, I, I want to start at the very beginning and not at the beginning of like the beginning of Asian America when like the first, you know, mm -hmm. Asian person like walked, walked out to these shores <laughs> through the land bridge or whatever. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and walked yeah. down through Alaska, but rather like, uh, you know, like in an immigrant's life. So let's say like, let, let's, you know, you and I are both Korean. I, I, I assume you're mm -hmm. Korean, but yeah. like, uh, mm -hmm. that, that a, uh, in somebody comes in from Korea in 1978, let's say, right. Mm -hmm. Which is about the time when a lot of. Korean immigrants start coming to the United States. Yeah. You write a lot about like the way in which they're politicized and how politicized they are at that point and like, you know, what they know about the American political system. So can you just give a sense of like, you know, new immigrants, how, how, how aware are they of, of what the American political system is and like how to participate in it? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. Um, let me, uh, if I, if I can just take one step back, let me just set that up by saying, here's how political scientists generally think about how Americans um, understand politics and how they shape their, how they come to 
form their political views, which, is, which starts with the assumption that you're a native-born American and you're born into this country, you're, you have parents who are born into this country. And so therefore, you know, from day one, in a way, like you understand what it means to be a Democrat, what it means to be a Republican and how your political views align with whether or not you think of yourself as a Democrat or Republican. And also whether you think of yourself as, you know, black, white, Latinx or AAPI. If you're an immigrant, none of that, uh, none of that is, uh, is for granted, right? When I, I immigrated in, uh, to the United States in 1974, maybe just before that, uh, that big wave of uh, immigration from uh, Korea to the United States. And, you know, I didn't come to the U.S. thinking of myself as Asian American or, you know, Asian Pacific Islander or AAPI. You know, mm-hmm. I came thinking of myself as, as a Korean. And that's, and that's, you know, borne out in a lot of our surveys that, you know, most uh, Asian Americans think of themselves in terms of their, you know, uh, national origin or national origin kind of hyphenated American. So, you know, like most persons of Korean descent will would think of themselves as Korean or Korean American. And this whole language of, you know, Asian American or AAPI is something that's learned once they come to the U.S. And I think it's first learned in the same way that you learn, you know, a new language without fully understanding the uh, the context and sort of the rich meaning and the rich history behind uh, the term. And the same is true also in terms of your, your, your politics. So some of the earliest studies of the political views of um, Asian Americans were conducted of uh, Asian Americans in, in California. And, you know, what a lot of those early studies in the 1980s found uh, were that, you know, uh, Asian Americans were either split in terms of their political views. So Japanese Americans political profile was quite different from that of Chinese Americans and quite different from Korean Americans and Vietnamese Americans, but also that, you know, they were pretty much divided in terms of partisanship. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the first, um, you know, uh, Asian American Senator uh, S.I. Hayakawa, you know, was elected as a as a Republican senator, which is quite different from the, you know, uh, pat, uh, patterns of partisanship among AAPIs, you know, today. And a lot of the conventional wisdom back then was that, you know, groups like Korean Americans and Vietnamese Americans were much more Republican than they were Democrat, in part because of their views about home country politics, the U.S. Uh, position vis-a-vis the former Soviet Union in terms of the Cold War. So it was the idea that foreign policy really um, informed a lot of their political views. But, you know, that's only going to be true of a certain kind of historical period in which, you know, uh, Asian Americans immigrated to the U.S. and also Asian Americans from, you know, certain countries. And over time, like once you, uh, 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 you know, live through the experience of being, you know, uh, Asian American or being Korean American in the U.S., Um, your views on uh, the relevance of politics and your views about politics itself is going to be just much uh, more complicated uh, than all of that. And so that's why, you know, um, between the uh, 1980s to the present, you see these huge changes in the political profile, you know, of Asian Americans where, you know, one of the patterns that we describe in the book is that if you look at some of the earliest exit polls, so the earliest uh, media exit poll that actually, separated out uh, results for Asian Americans was in 1992. Wow. And in, and, it, and took in 19- the, it took that long, huh? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but previous to 1992, we were always part of this mysterious group called Other, right? Oh, and you other, still see yeah. this mysterious group yeah. called Other. 
I mean, even in 2020, if you look at, if you go up to CNN or New York Times or whatever and check out the exit polls, once you drill down to uh, states, if you look at states that are, you know, less uh, populous than like New York, California, Florida, like, you know, Asian Americans will be under the other group. So it's still true today. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in 1992, when you look at those exit polls, it, it says that, uh, you know, only 31% of Asian Americans voted for Bill Clinton, the Democratic candidate. And in the last few, you know, election cycles, you're looking at, you know, the high 60s uh, in some, you know, uh, separate uh, exit polling that I've done, you know, north of 70% of Asian Americans say that they voted for the Democratic candidate. So, you know, over a 20, 30 year time period, there's no other group in the U.S. that has swung so much in terms of their political views than, uh, than Asian Americans have. So, Hey, well, just, why, yeah. why did that happen? Because, you know, like, I, I think that there's two models, right, or two visions of the Asian American voter, and they're totally locked in time. So the first one is sort of the Reaganite Asian American, right, which mm -hmm. is a Vietnamese or Korean or Chinese Americans, uh, almost all East Asians at that point, who come to the United States, and they, you know, they buy into capital, you know, they buy into like, the American mm -hmm. dream in some sort of way, that's sort of the schmaltzy way to put it. But they also have, as you said, their politics are informed by where they came from. Like that's their political background and the idea. And, you know, if you are, were in South Vietnam, for example, right. And you came to the United States, like your sympathies are not going to be with, you know, your sympathies are going to probably be with, with the right wing in the United States right. and similar in Korea as well, where you just have this spirit of entrepreneurship. I, I think that's a very, you know, whatever way that you want to edit that politically in your own head, but you know, people yeah. coming in, starting small businesses and, um, and that that is one profile of the voter, right? And then the second profile of the voter is, you know, somebody I would think more like myself, who was like born, here, I wasn't born here in the United States, but, you know, very young, come over here, mm -hmm. grow up in America, go to like a very, you know, ex exclusive colleges, and then like sort of are upwardly ascendant. And almost all those people, I would say, are Democrats at this point, right? So those are, the, are those the two models? Like, what, what accounts for that shift between like the Reaganite voter and like, you know, some, you know, some liberal like myself? Well, so I think, you know, one thing that has to be said, and I think um, has to always be said, is that uh, those are the two models, and they're constantly in tension. So even though I've described that, you know, over a 20, 30 year time period, a kind of sea change in terms of the aggregate numbers of Asian Americans who are voting Democrat or Republican, I think it's true, even in 2020, that the community is still really diverse. Uh, so there are pockets of really deep conservatism one of the kind of through lines that's, um, you know, really emerged in the 2020 vote is that the same thing that you've probably, your listeners have probably heard, seen, or read about in terms of the Latinx vote becoming a little bit more Trumpian in 2020 than it was in 2016, I think also holds for APIs that, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a small shift, but that, you know, uh, Trump, you know, made some inroads or the Republican Party made some inroads into the AAPI community, even though the APA community today is overwhelmingly uh, democratic. I mean, some of the, the kind of contrast that you point out is generational. So I think when you look at, you know, uh, the Filipino American community, Vietnamese American community, Chinese American community, you know, Asian American, uh, Korean American community, the older generations, the oldest generations tend to be, you know, the most likely to swing uh, Republican. But, you know, that's not an entirely, you know, uh, you know, uh, accurate story. So, you know, for Korean Americans, for example, um, middle-aged Korean Americans like me, 
are a little bit more liberal and a little bit more democratic than the youngest Korean Americans. <laughs> really, uh, really. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and, and I think, what, you know, do, you, do you have a theory on why that might be? Well, I mean, I think part of the, there's kind of a cohort, what you call a cohort effect among middle-aged uh, Korean Americans that very much relates to their understanding what it means to be a racial minority and what it means to be political that is related to the 1992 LA uprising. Yeah. Um, I think that was kind of a defining political moment for the Korean American community and many different Asian American communities have their own sort of defining, you know, political uh, moment in their history in the U.S. But for Korean Americans, I think that definitely marked a lot of uh, people who were in the U.S. at that time. And so I think that's part of what's more distinctive. It's more about the story of middle-aged Korean Americans than it's the story about, you know, what's up with young Korean Americans. Okay. So everyone who remembers like, uh, you know, the 92 yeah. um, has, you know, was either radicalized by it or became like a reactionary by it. Is that, is that generally the idea? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the parents who, you know, stood up on the roof of the supermarket, like they're always going to be reactionary about it. So there's no swing there. Is that, is that generally the idea? Well, well some, but not all, because I, I think the, you know, if, if you can generalize for a lot of Korean Americans prior to, you know, April 20, uh, you know, 29th, 1992, sort of were, uh, you know, uh, largely economic immigrants who felt like, you know, like you don't want any politics in your life. You want to keep your head low and you want to, you know, get your kids into these, you know, fancy schools and then, you know, make it in the U.S. that way. And the idea of sort of being, uh, you know, targeted as a minority group or the idea of sort of being in the middle of this centuries-long conflict between Black Americans and white Americans and being scapegoated, you know, as that sort of middleman minority group didn't occur to most Korean Americans. And, you know, just seeing the extent to which a lot of, you know, Korean Americans in LA saw, you know, like their life investments go up in flames and seeing the LAPD, you know, sort of set up, you know, uh, uh, you know, like a line that separated Hollywood from, yeah. from Koreatown, you know, I think that's a very stark reminder that, you know, to some Korean Americans that, you know, maybe, maybe I have more in common, you know, with black and brown, you know, Angelinos than I do with, you know, the white, you know, Angelinos living up in the hills that I thought I was aspiring to be like. So I think that cuts both, that cut both ways for people. Um, yeah, yeah, there's certainly, there's been so much written about that effect. And I can't make heads or tails of it. You know, I've, I've read, I think I've read almost all of it, you know, some of it, I'm just like, come on, you know, like people were actually like, cause some of the academic scholarship almost makes it seem like, well, Koreans weren't really mad about all of this happiness. Like, no, they're pretty mad, you know, yeah, yeah. and they're like, oh, they, ex or, or, you know, like that none of them became reactionaries. In fact, like they had summits and stuff like that. And I find myself very unconvinced by that type of idea that because there was some sort of summit that, you know, all of this yeah. healed over. But at the same time, I would just say, and you know, that it's very hard to find data about any of this sort of stuff. Like, what would you do? You do a survey, but like anecdotally, yeah. I think I've, I've also found people who, who actually did say, you know, like, uh, you know, like, well, we're not white, you know, so yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So uh, I, I mean, I would say the extent to which it's, it's kind of a mixed bag and, um, both sort of narratives hold water is, um, a testament to sort of the power of leadership and organizing. Cause I, I agree with you that, that if a lot of Korean American organizations and, uh, and leaders on the progressive side didn't step in and try to, um, um, 
make Korean Americans understand the extent to which, um, you know, their success depended on the success of organizing as, uh, with other communities of color. Uh, I think the void would have just been filled by a lot of, you know, uh, what, you know, uh, conservatism and, you know, uh, you know, and maybe even worse forms of, you know, racism towards, you know, black Americans and Latino Americans. So I think, I think there was a lot of, um, community building and organizing that, um, it, that took effect after, you know, after the riots had, had died down that, you know, um, is an important part of the story of why the communities, you know, sort of become more progressive instead of become more reactionary in the aftermath of the, of the rioting. Um, so, uh, you know, let, let's, let's, let's think about this timeline again, right? Like, so an immigrant comes to the United States, right? Um, and they, they, they have a kid. Um, and the kid goes to, you know, they, they go to public school or whatever. And let's say they, they live in Alexandria, Virginia, let's say, or something like that. And, um, and like, at what point along the timeline does it occur to these people to start voting and participating in actual politics in that sort of way? Or do they? And what is the conversion rate? Because, you know, I'd say, you know, the, the, and again, this is anecdotally, I know a lot of uh, immigrants, Asian immigrants, you know, from a lot of different countries. And I would say that the percentage of them that I know that vote or care about uh, electoral politics is, you know, very close to zero. And so like, wh- wh- how does this politicization process happen? Well, I mean, a lot of it happens. So, I mean, some of it happens, uh, you know, if you, you know, if you're in that group of APIs that succeed, you know, uh, educationally in K through 12 education and, and get to go to, you know, university, then a lot of it, a lot of your initial kind of political awakening, I think, happens in university. But, you know, not everyone gets to, you know, uh, uh, take that sort of path. Um, a lot of it, for me, I think, happens more over time in the U.S. in the sense that, um, to the extent that a lot of, not all, but a lot of API immigrants were economic immigrants. Uh, I think, you know, their, their primary interest was in making it, you know, economically in the U.S. and not really, you know, as long as politics didn't get in the way, they weren't going to get involved in politics. I think the big role here has been the role of a lot of community-based organizations who uh, serve different uh, API communities, whether it's the elderly, whether it's, you know, people who substance uh, domestic abuse, whether it's kind of, uh, you know, youth educational programs and so on to, to make the point that if you want your community to flourish, you need to get involved in politics because the, the biggest kind of choke point for a long period of time for the political engagement of APIs was getting them to register to vote. So for a long period of time, it was true of a lot of APIs uh, communities that naturalization rates once you are eligible would be pretty high, but voter registration rates among those who had naturalized as immigrants was remarkably low. So that when you looked at the overall sort of, you know, citizen voting age population of APIs for a long period of time, uh, it was only about one out of three voter eligible Asian Americans who actually turned out to vote. Uh, it's turned is that, out that how, what is that like compared to other, you know, groups, like compared to like, let's say like Latino or, or, so, or black populations? Yeah, so, so Latinos and Asian Americans have actually tracked very closely in terms of their underparticipation for a long period of time. But compared to whites and African Americans, I think for those groups, it's, um, it's 50 to 60% of the vo- voter eligible population that have voted. So, you know, that's a huge underrepresentation in terms of, you know, speaking, um, you know, um, with, your, uh, with your voting rights. 
And that's really changed a lot since 2008. So for both Latinos and Asian Americans since 2008, there's been a steady increase in uh, the uh, numbers who have registered to vote and have actually turned out to vote. And, you know, for the story in voting for Asian Americans is the same as the story of voting for everybody. Once you convince somebody, you know, that, that voting matters the first time, it's likely to be habit forming. Um, and, you know, for a long period of time, the other part of the story is also that the political parties essentially did not see Asian Americans as relevant uh, to their winning an election. Um, they may have seen, and this is the way in which sort of um, invidious negative stereotypes kind of work to kind of disempower Asian Americans. I think for a long period of time, the, the, the political parties as national organizations maybe saw Asian Americans as relevant as campaign, contributor, uh, campaign contributors, but not relevant as voters. So um, for a long period of time, they did not invest much at all in terms of getting out the vote uh, with respect to AAPI communities. And the other kind of negative, so one negative stereotype is Asian Americans must be socioeconomically successful. So we'll ask them for their money. Yeah. But they're small in numbers, for, so we're not gonna try to turn them out. But then the other kind of negative stereotype <laughs> there is to think that, well, most, uh, most Asian Americans are immigrants, so I don't even know if they're going to be interested in voting, and I don't even know if they're eligible to vote, and we know that they don't really register to vote in high numbers. Well, that turns out to be a really kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, because political scientists have done these you know, wonderful field experimental studies, which show that actually one of the best bangs for your you know, uh, campaign book is to actually try to uh, turn out to register and then turn out first time voters. So if you actually invest in those communities, you know, do a GOTV, get them to register to vote, get them to turn out to vote, you're going to get lifelong uh, voters. So that's one of the best things you can do. Uh, um, like, so, yeah, that, it, it, has that really changed that? Because, you know, you were involved in the National Asian American Survey, which mm -hmm. actually, you know, one of the 2020 version, which was a survey that was done before people went out to vote. It was published in September. Um, you know, it got a lot of attention, I think, in terms of the breakdown of and we'll talk about that in a bit and just like the breakdown of country of origin and, and what, the way that they vote. But both those in 2016 and 2020 tracked something that I found interesting, which was just how much outreach there is to these voters, right? And like, how, how often are you contacted by either party? Have you ever been contacted by either party? Like, do you know, you know, do, do people send mail to you? Do people call you on the phone? It seems like for Asian Americans and for Asians that, that that number is like the lowest of any other group, that there's almost no outreach. Is that so it like, has it, this problem hasn't really been solved yet, right? Like it's still, it's still an issue. Well, I think, so 2020 is the first time I'm starting to see numbers that look, well, actually, let me back up. 2018 actually turns out to be a really critical election. And I, I, so it's less that I think the parties are now starting to get it with respect to APIs as, as voters. But I think it's more that, that like the tide of mobilization has been rising for everybody. So, okay. yeah. uh, you know, I think 2018 was just a record setting, you know, mobilization turnout campaign for a midterm election. And a lot of that momentum continued to build in, in 2020. So, I mean, to your question, like prior to, prior to 2018, when we ask in surveys, you know, has a candidate campaign or some other organization reached out to you about registering to vote or turning out to vote, typically the numbers for APIs will be about a full 10 percentage points lower than for other groups, especially uh, for whites and African-Americans. So in most 
presidential election year is about 40 to 50% or white of, of whites and African Americans was like somebody's contacted me about, you know, uh, registering or voting. And for APIs, it'll be a number in the thirties or maybe 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2018, that number went North of 50% for APIs. And then in the survey that we did in the week leading up to election, uh, uh this year's election, the number was, uh, close to 60%. But the national average that we got in our survey this year uh, for uh, for all groups was close to 70%. So there was just a huge, I mean, literally unprecedented mobilization effort uh, in the 2020 campaign. And we saw it just in terms of the you know overall turnout numbers, like about 100, we'll probably be at about 151, 152 million um, people having turned out to vote in 2020, which is, a, uh, you know, uh, um, just in terms of the percentage is going to be a number that is higher than anything we've seen in this country since 1908 or 1900. So um, it's, uh, you know, I think maybe in a way, uh, this is a case in which COVID may actually have helped with the high turnout levels in the yeah. sense that a lot of people were home and therefore they were reachable in ways that they wouldn't have been if they weren't, you know, working out of home. I think that like the possibility of voting by mail and voting early and everything like that was was breached to people who might not have known it, you know, yeah. and they would have just pictured themselves going to a polling station. But instead, they're like, oh, I just have to click this thing and fill out this ballot and, you know, drop it in this box. It's really not that hard. And whereas before they would have pictured themselves in some endless line yeah. on a library on a work weekday or something like that. Um, I, I wanted to talk about this like sort of contradiction. I don't know if it's a contradiction, but it's something that you sort of tease out in the book quite a bit, which is, you know, like how, like what does it mean to target APIs? Right. Because like, as you said, it's such a diverse population. It's not really a population that makes sense. It certainly is a population that doesn't consider itself to be Asian American, really, you know, like a lot of, a lot of those populations and one that has like, very few, you know, some, but, but mostly limited affinities between one another. Right. And so like you have mm-hmm. Vietnamese Americans and you have, uh, let's say like Japanese Americans and maybe somebody, they walk into like Idaho or something like that. And, you know, maybe somebody can't tell those two apart. Maybe I can't, you know, sometimes, but yeah. too, but, yeah. but outside of that, like, there's no, there's no correlate. There, there's almost no overlap between like a Vietnamese population here in the United States and the Japanese American population in the United States, which is like, you know, like much older and, you know, has different, completely different politics. So like, does it even make sense to reach out to like AAPIs or to even categorize them in that way? Well, so, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I think it, it depends on what you mean by targeting APIs and for what purpose. So if you're trying to reach out to APIs to get them registered to vote, there's some really basic things uh, that, that, that you have to do in order to be successful. Like, for example, you have to take language access really seriously. It's still the case, even in 2020, with the huge mobilization effort that I just described, that a lot of APIs did not have access to in-language, uh, you know, election materials or mm. in-language, uh, in-language ballots. And so, you know, you're, you're basically excluding the potential participation of huge numbers of APIs just by not taking language diversity seriously. So that's, that's before you even get to having to learn about each community. So obviously, if you want to really do the kind of targeted outreach that persuades you know APIs about the importance of politics, and then at the next level, 
that tries to persuade APIs voters like this is why you need to vote for my candidate or this is why you need to vote on this particular battle initiative. Then you need to really try to understand that like you can't take a one size fits all approach and you can't assume that one message is going to work for the full diversity of different communities. You actually have to try to understand like um, you know, one of the kind of things that we try to do with our survey is to try to define like what is the API policy agenda and how does the policy agenda differ for, let's say, Chinese Americans uh, than, you know, Filipino Americans or Vietnamese Americans, uh, South Asians and so on, because they they do look a little bit different, you know, so you can't just go in there and say, uh, you know, for example, for a long period of time, I think one uh, big kind of um, uh, lack of, I guess, cultural sensitivity or lack of understanding of the API community politically that I saw in a lot of uh, previous elections was to assume that because APIs were very heavily foreign born, that their number one issue was going to be immigration in the same way that the number one issue for, you know, Latino voters has for a very long time been immigration. It turns out in these surveys, it's not that immigration is not important for APIs, but it's not even in the top three. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what are the top three then, you know, like as a group, because like, I think one of the things, like I, I would say that our listeners will know that I'm very skeptical of any sort of lumping together of Asian American, I, mm. you know, and I, I look, I live like five blocks from the house on Hearst Avenue where those, you know, people in 1969 came up with yeah. the term and I have a great amount of affection and I feel like what they did was important. However, I, you know, like that's not what we talk about anymore, right? Yeah. We're not talking about like, you know, the, Asian Black Panthers, you know, like, which is like, essentially what they were trying to start. Um, That, uh, you know, my my skepticism, essentially, that, you know, perhaps we should do away with this, with this, we we shouldn't get rid of a, of something that is so ubiquitous, it's going to be impossible that we should start to abandon this idea that there is any affinity. But, you know, I think I'm, you know, I'm perfectly happy being wrong about this, or, you know, at least to nuancing out my opinion on this or my stance on this. And so one of the things that I found interesting is that, you know, there do, there do seem to be some shared interests, right? And like, um, so what, what are those that you found in your survey? Like, what are the shared interests? Well, I mean, so in terms of, in terms of political issues, I think the top three, in some sense, are not that different from the top three for the country as a whole, which is, you know, it's economics and jobs, number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you can, you know, if we can all kind of remember to a, a, a pre-COVID and maybe a pre-Trump era, that's always been the number one issue for American voters. I think since, since Trump and since COVID, I think a lot of times now, number one and two is about kind of the sad state of our political system and then also COVID. So, uh, but I think in, in the era before that, I think it's, it's economics and jobs, number one. The one area where I think APIs are a bit distinctive is more so than other uh, groups of voters, healthcare is really important. And a lot of that is because of the particular vulnerability of a lot of API communities as immigrant-based communities that they tend to be more highly represented among, if you know, in the pre-Affordable Care Act era, they were much more highly represented among those that were either uninsured or underinsured. Yeah. And they're also a lot more vulnerable now with the, you know, uh, proposed rollbacks to the ACA, you know, that the Trump administration has been, you know, trying to, and the Republicans have been trying to push through on. So, so healthcare is really important. It's it's a strong number two. And then probably number three is education. So greater investments in K through 12 education and also making college education, you know, more affordable to more, you know, 
uh, more Americans. And then I think after those top three, that, that's when you start talking about immigration and uh, racism and racial inequality. I think those issues uh, show up. And you know, on the, on the racial justice, racial equality side, especially since um, this spring, I think it's, it's kind of leapfrogged as, as a really big issue uh, for APIs, both because both because of you know uh, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and because uh, APIs have become especially vulnerable to a lot of microaggressions, discrimination, and hate crime, you know, related to COVID. Uh, right, yeah, let's let's talk about it at the very end because I, yeah. I have a specific question about that. Yeah. But um, but yeah, that's like so the top those top three, right? Like they do seem to be very universal to me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to like make some sort yeah. of like Marxian argument against identity politics here, yeah. poli- I promise. But, you uh, know, it just strikes me that like healthcare, right? You know, access to healthcare, education. If you talk to somebody on the street and look, this, your survey spoke to a lot of different groups and a lot of different people and the results, you know, are eye-opening in some sort of way. Because if you talk to somebody on the street who had a passing knowledge of Asian Americans and you said, well, they really care about education, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I think that especially here in California with all the stuff around Proposition 16, they might assume that that means that they're, they, they lean towards the right on, um, mm-hmm. on issues like this, you know, that they would be more into like, you know, higher exclusivity at these schools, like more into things like charter schools and, you know, different pathways for exclusive education and also, uh, you know, anti-affirmative action. And I do think, you know, there's obviously a large anti-affirmative action contingent Mm -hmm. within the Asian American community. You saw it with Proposition 16 as well. And so there are results Mm -hmm. like that. But it seems like the issues that your survey respondents uh, laid out where it was more about access to quality education. It wasn't about increasing exclusivity is about perhaps dropping tuition costs, you know, like more, more support for K through eight, more support for public institutions. Um, is, is that generally right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's absolutely right. And so I, I think, you know, it, as a largely immigrant based community, uh, it's not unreasonable to expect a lot of their politics to be based on imagining a better future, not just for themselves, but for their children. So, so, you know, a lot of it is about economic opportunities and equality of opportunities more generally. So to the extent that I sometimes I get asked about why such a high percentage of Asian Americans setting aside Proposition 16 for a second, yeah, which is a whole separate kind of bag. <laughs> um, why such a high percentage of Asian Americans in so many surveys seem so supportive of affirmative action, uh, especially affirmative action in higher education when most Asian American applicants aren't seen as, as potential beneficiaries of that program. And I think it's, it's this general commitment to equality of opportunity and, uh, and affirmative, to the extent that affirmative action is related to that, I think a lot of Asian Americans see that as a good thing. Yeah, it's uh, it, the, 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 uh, the polling on affirmative action within groups, right? Like within, especially between, within Latino and within Asian American groups is totally i have no idea what to make of it the wording of it seems to shift the answer by like 40 percent sometimes you know mm-hmm. and especially with proposition 16 like it seems like uh within the like i i don't even and then there's part of me that is you know as a journalist is just skeptical of a lot of explanations right so like now mm-hmm. there's this narrative out that with proposition 16 for our listeners proposition 16 was a proposition in california that would have uh and this is why it gets confusing is that it you know it was to 
ban the ban on affirmative action, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so some of the explanations that are coming out is basically just like the confusing wording of the of these propositions, which is a lot of times done intentionally leads to people not quite understanding what they are voting for. Now, I find that to be, you know, saying like, well, all the dumb Latinos and Asians didn't know what they're voting for, to be, you know, like somewhat problematic uh, explanation. But, you know, it, it, it is a confusingly worded thing. Um, but like you, you did find like your own, your own polling 2016, 2020 through the survey did ask Asian Americans about affirmative action specifically. Uh, what, what did you find? Well, I mean, so for the, 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 the now 12 years that I've been doing surveys of Asian Americans, I think one of the surprising things is um, the high percentage of Asian Americans who are supportive of affirmative action. So, and as you pointed out, a lot of it depends on how you describe what it is. So you can describe it in terms of, um, you know, uh, employment and contracting. You can describe it in terms of access to higher education. You can describe Asian Americans with the idea that some Asian Americans might be beneficiaries of the program. And you can describe it, you know, um, as a program where Asian Americans are not likely to benefit. And depending on which one of those you do, uh, you're going to get a higher or lower number. But the number is typically about 60 to, to as high as 80% of Asian Americans who support affirmative action. Then the other thing to note is, you know, there are subgroup differences. So, you know, one thing that's been very much in the news over the last five, you know, maybe 10 years is the growing opposition to affirmative action within the Chinese American community. I'm actually seeing in, in some of the polling data I've seen in 2020, a little bit of a kind of... Um, trend back in support of affirmative action. So what I mean, what I mean by that is that the levels of support of, for affirmative action in the Chinese American community are not as low as they have been in previous polls. So that um, there is a little bit of a kind of a progressive counter, you know, uh, balancing to the movement away from support for affirmative action in recent years. The last thing I'll say just in general in terms of affirmative action is it's sort of a classic wedge issue where if you define affirmative action as sort of a zero sum policy, like in order for you know, African-Americans to benefit, someone else has to suffer, then, then support levels are gonna be a lot lower. If you describe it as sort of a, you know, like a form of preferential treatment, as opposed to giving an additional consideration, yeah. to, then support levels are gonna be truer. So Asian-Americans are no different from any other person that you survey where depending on how you describe what the program is trying to do, um, you're going to get different results. And the, 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 the spreads on that sort of stuff are so large that it seems like, you know, there needs to be some sort of summit that all you survey guys <laughs> do and you just decide on what the wording is going to be because, and it's, you know, it has nothing to do with the survey people like actually, you know, finding those types of disparities is interesting yeah. in itself, obviously, but um yeah, it's like, I can't make heads or tails of it because it's like, you know, it, uh, um, I believe the results, you know, I don't think anyone makes up the results, but you know, like when you say, do you support affirmative action yeah. It's 70%, do you support like racial preferences? It's like, you know, 52%, you're like, what, yeah. you know, what just happened? Um, all right, so on, on uh, just in terms of education, like in the book, you, you sort of track the educational attainment of these different groups within AAPI, right? So like, uh, like Asian Indians is a, is a, term that that is a group that you track Vietnamese Americans Korean Americans Japanese Americans yeah, yeah. as well and what you find is that Asian Indians have the highest educational attainment of amongst all the Asian immigrant groups and that Vietnamese are near the bottom at um, they sort of 
graduate from college around 26% of the population. And that this is also reflected in their voting preferences where Asian Indians are actually significantly the most Democrat of Mm -hmm. the Asian group of the Asian ethnicities within AAPI and Vietnamese by very far. I I think that's a fair thing to say, like by a almost like, you know, startling margin are the most Republican. Mm -hmm. Are those two things correlated? Do you think? Well, I mean, going back to one of your first questions to me, that's why, Asian American politics is such a fascinating, yeah. uh, you know, topic for research. Cause I think there, there's so many kind of paradoxes or there's so many ways in which when you look at Asian American politics, a lot of the typical stories that we tell about politics in the U S just don't fit. Right. So a typical story is like the, the higher SES you are, the more likely you are to vote Republican. Cause you, you know, it, it serves your material interest to vote for the party that's going to lower your taxes. Yeah. And Asian Americans are, as a group, they're a very high SES group compared to many other groups, but they're also very heavily Democrat. And then when you look within the group, you know, the group that is the highest SES group among the major Asian American groups uh, are Asian Indians, and they're the most Democratic Asian American group. And the lowest, uh, you know, among the large uh, API groups, you know, Vietnamese Americans, they're the most Republican. So, um, you know, so the typical kinds of stories don't fit um, in terms of uh, in terms of telling the story of why they're not, not just I mean, you expect diversity within the API community, but the particular shape that the diversity takes is is always kind of surprising. Um, you know, uh, for Vietnamese Americans, I think part of the story is kind of um, well, I think there's a, there's a couple of stories. One is the sort of, um, you know, um, history of immigration to the U.S. in the context of, you know, Vietnam, the U.S., and the Cold War, and the, the sort of narrative that we, you know, uh, shared earlier about, you know, a lot of uh, South Vietnamese immigrating to the U.S. and, you know, wanting to uh, ally with a party that is the most anti, you know, Soviet Union in terms of their yeah. foreign policy. But I think the other part of the story is also geography. So, you know, um, a lot of Vietnamese Americans came to the U.S. and they, you know, for reasons having to do with social networks and, and so on, you know, they settled in Orange County. It's a little bit like, you know, the, like the story of Cuban Americans who immigrated to the U.S. and then settled in, you know, a part of Miami-Dade uh, County where the Republican Party had a lot of, you know, success in trying to bring them into the Republican Party. So I think same with Vietnamese Americans, the Orange County Republican Party had a lot of success bringing the Vietnamese American community, you know, into the Republican Party. But over time, I think because of, you know, uh, generational succession and also the degree to which, you know, Vietnamese Americans do face, you know, a lot more challenges in terms of socioeconomic uh, status and, you know, upward mobility, um, you see a big shift in terms of Vietnamese Americans becoming more and more democratic. So you're right that in 2020, Vietnamese Americans are still the most split in terms of their partisanship. But, you know, in our survey, still about 60% of Vietnamese Americans said that, you know, they voted for Biden-Harris instead of, you know, Trump and Pence. Yeah, they, that, 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 I actually really appreciated that part of your book because I think it was one of the things that I hadn't thought about, which is that, you know, you sort of get this me- thought and you're like, okay, this person comes to the United States, they have these beliefs, right? Like they hate communism, for example, or they think socialism is bad, or they hate China, or they hate the USSR. 
And then all their political beliefs are formed by that. And then they interface them onto like whatever party is in America that they don't know. But it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like this tabula rasa idea. Mm -hmm. But there are all these other inputs coming in. And so like one of them geographically, really, I mean, it made total sense to me where I was like, oh, yeah, if you go to Orange County and everybody that is around you is uh, is you know, conservative, then you're, you're not going to get another political message, you know? Um, right. And, uh, and you don't really have fully formed political ideas because you didn't grow up in this country. Totally understandable. And then yeah. they change the other time though, that I found interesting that I was hoping that you could shed a little light on is that it seems to me that like college going to college is a big differentiator here, right. Or a big, a big differentiator where, Asian Americans who go to college, you know, and who grew up in the United States are so overwhelmingly democratic that it must be some sort of effect. Um, and the Asian groups that tend to be less democratic are the ones with the lower educational attainment rates. Like, so what's the role of sort of, you know, going to college and all of this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to know. So, I mean, um, in a way, I'll have to speculate more than you know, be able to speak on the basis of, sure. you know, speculation is fine. It's a podcast. Like, you know, nobody, nobody's yeah, going to keep track, you know, track of it. Yeah. I, I think of, uh, I think of colleges and the educational experience as, as kind of like being in a, like a siloed community for, you know, two years or four years where, you know, for the first time for a lot of APIs, especially if you're not, if you're not bi-coastal, like if you're like me, I, I immigrated and then, you know, wound up finishing high school in Michigan. It's the first time that you actually see a lot of people, um, you know, who are like you, you know, who come from similar kinds of backgrounds, and then you get to share stories. So the story that, you know, I, that I hear in college about the experience of being Asian American is not the, you know, you have to be anti-communist, story that I hear from my parents, right? <laughs> like all of a sudden we're sharing different experiences and different narratives. And yeah. so I think, you know, especially when you put that up against the fact that, you know, Asian Americans do report, you know, uh, significant levels of experiences of discrimination. They report really high levels of experiences of microaggression and so on. So, you know, sometimes you experience those things and you don't have kind of a bigger picture to set that in context and being just in an institutional setting, you know, that is designed to make people, you know, think critically and think with an open mind with other people, I think is a, is, you know, a lot of the kind of ingredients that I think help to explain why, you know, college has such a profound effect in terms of, you know, shaping the political views of a lot of, uh, a lot of Asian Americans. Yeah, and it also is a time when they decide they're Asian American, right? As opposed to yeah. um, before. And if, if you're in California and you go to one of the UCs, like you're probably going to wind up taking an Asian American studies class, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, at least going to a couple like uh, you know meetings and stuff like that, and mm -hmm. you know, it, it's it does seem like that moment always very interesting to me it's also interesting to me because i i it just never happened to me because i went to college in maine you know like oh, a tiny yeah. liberal arts college in yeah. maine and so yeah. I, I was like it was it was like being in high school again <laughs> it's like it's just me and a few other yeah. and these four yeah. dudes you know yeah. so um yeah it was uh 
Um, I, I find that fascinating because, you know, I would have liked to have that experience, but, you know, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about it at the age of 18. Like, I'm going to go to college and like, you know, join right. Korean Bible study and you know, <laughs> <laughs> like eat me up, Google or whatever. Yeah, right, right. Um, all right. So, um, uh, yeah, let's go forward a little bit because, you know, I know that I don't want to keep you here too long, but like mm-hmm. there was this really interesting anecdote at the beginning of this book that I wanted to talk about. And it was mm-hmm. uh, about... 2008 and there was you know there was for the first time there's a story about how asian voters were coming out and voting right and there was also Mm -hmm. a story that like as opposed to 1992 or 1988 that there was this real trend towards them turning democrat Mm -hmm. but that they tended to support hillary clinton over barack obama in the primary and the reason stated was that because you know anti-blackness within the asian community and that like you know like they would not want to vote for black person um I, I don't know i was interested in that in that thought in that moment because you know you 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 start the book with it so obviously it was important to 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 you and your co-authors and it was like um like did, what what should we take away from that moment like what why did you choose to start the book with that with that anecdote well i think partly we started with that anecdote because i think we wanted to um start with the fact that AAPIs are sort of a, a, a community of color. And I think uh, communities of color have to try to think about whether they're going to ally with other communities of color or whether they want to try to aspire to some status of honorary whiteness. And I think the, the contrast in what the, at least facially, what supporting Hillary Clinton as opposed to supporting Barack Obama represented, I think, captured a lot of the themes that we wanted to explore in the book. Now, it actually turns out, I think there, there are good reasons having to do with incumbency effects and Hillary Clinton's association with Bill Clinton, which helped to, uh, and Bill Clinton actually, I think, was one of the early um, Democratic leaders that really tried to, um, you know, uh, speak to Asian Americans as not just as donors, but also, you know, as voters. Clinton also had a whole race initiative where, uh, you know, he he named a, a prominent Asian American leader, Angela O, oh, to his um, uh, race initiative uh, commission, and it was the first time you got to see like a prominent you know Asian American person in a political position like that. And I think a lot of you know a lot of Asian Americans uh, remembered that and remembered that positively in association with Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, and then so then the worry was that we're also you know uh, in the context of you know the you know, Korean grocers sort of, uh, you know, racial conflict in New York and the 1992 LA uprising in LA, you know, what would Asian American voters think about possibly supporting, you know, an African American candidate for president. So we thought that that presented some really interesting tensions. And it turns out, you know, when it came down to, you know, voting for, you know, Obama or voting for McCain, uh, Asian Americans had uh, not that much difficulty choosing, right? So, you know, and, and our, our big worry in our, in our survey was that it was a pre-election survey. Mm-hmm. And we found that about, if I'm remembering correctly, about uh, 30% of our uh, respondents said that they didn't know how they were going to vote. This was among registered Asian American voters. And this was and at this last of 2020. No, no, this is 2008. Oh, 2008. So I was trying to motivate why we were really interested in this question. Yeah. So for political scientists who study race, when you, when you ask somebody if they're going to uh, vote for or against a black political candidate, 
people call this the, the Bradley effect after uh, uh, Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley in the 1980s, where everybody thought Bradley was going to do great. And then it turned out that the first time he ran, I think he lost. And the explanation for that was that a lot of white voters who didn't want to support a black candidate wound up saying, I don't know who I'm going to vote for because they didn't want to just come out and say, I'm, I'm not going to vote for the black candidate. Sure. And so when we saw such a high percentage of Asian American voters saying, I don't know if I'm going to vote for Obama or McCain, our big worry was that maybe, maybe a lot of you know, Asian American voters are really reluctant uh, you know, to vote for an Asian American candidate. A black candidate, you mean? Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, a black candidate. But then when you looked at the exit polls, it turns out that you know, uh, Obama uh, got basically the same share of the undecided voters that he did of the share of the people who said, you know, I'm going to vote for Obama or McCain. So I, I, you know, I think our interpretation of that was that, you know, a lot of that was Asian Americans as first time voters or as people who are still getting familiar with, you know, what partisan politics meant, or maybe Asian American voters who were generally struggling with, can I vote for a black, you know, candidate, you know, ultimately deciding to split according to their, you know, political interests or where they stood on the issues. Um, I, I want to talk about these, uh, these surveys specifically a little bit with the remaining time that we have. And so yeah. 2016 and 2020, these surveys come out and they're chock full of information. We're going to link to them in the, both the newsletter we send out and in the show notes. And so you can see it. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have seen a lot of this, especially since the one leading up to this election really did sort of get spread out. And I think it was written about in all sorts of places like the Times and uh, Vox and wherever. But um, the, I just want to start with like a very broad question, right? Like how, how, how useful is the category Asian American for collecting this data? Like, you know, like, is it like, is it like a fool's errand in some sort of way? Or is it like, a, you know, is it necessary? Like, wh like, wh why, if, if the group is so diverse, right? Like, you know, like how, how useful is it to just be like, all right, I'm going to track the AAPI vote? Well, I think it's at least really important politically in the sense that um, I think if you want to be in the game in an election year where you want the candidates and the parties to take your vote seriously, um, you want to be able to speak as a group. And, um, you know, Asian American right now is the best sort of grouping that we have to get candidates to speak to our community and to speak to our interests. Um, you know, they may not fully understand us as a community. They may not, may not understand the diversity of our community. But I think if, if you want, uh, you know, if you want candidates to, to take the issues, whether it's, you know, healthcare or education or racial justice seriously, and to associate it with Asian American voters, I think you, you have to have some sort of umbrella grouping. Okay, so, th yeah, so that, the, 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 yeah. the pressure is going upwards then. It's yeah. like, it's basically like, like if it's, it's me, if I've like, let's say there's like 100 Koreans in America and you say like, um, you know, hey, we're, we all speak the same language, we eat the same food, we have similar politics, you know, we, you know, we're under like the, you know, we lived under a dictatorship and now we're here yeah. in the United States. Um, and yeah. Uh, please pay attention to us. It's, is, it, is that the problem is like, you know, people are just like, well, you're such a small group. And so you kind of need that cohesion and you need like a monolithic group for the politicians to actually pay attention to you. Is that, is that why it's, it's necessary? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, in a way it harks back to an earlier effort in the, um, I'm going to get my history wrong here, but I, I think it was in the early 1990s, uh, a group of uh, 
prominent Chinese American leaders um, formed this organization called uh, 8020. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea was that whichever presidential candidate, I think this was in the context of either the 88 or 92 election, whichever presidential candidate would make uh, campaign promises to the Asian American community, the organization 8020 was kind of try to deliver uh, 80% right, yep, yep. Asian American vote for them. And I think it, that's basically the sort of political bargain that, um, that you want to try to reach. I think if you think about African-Americans, they've always been able to at least draw the attention of uh, presidential candidates and just, you know, political candidates overall, at least in the primary stage, if not also in the general election stage, because they are so, uh, you know, cohesive as a group in terms of how they vote. African-Americans are also enormously diverse politically when you get, you know, just beneath the surface. But in terms of being able to reliably count on one segment of the electorate to vote 80, 90 percent, you know, for one party, you can basically extract a lot of political promises, you know, if you can if you can basically, you know, act collectively in that way. And so I think that that serves a community's interests. But, you know, I'd say that black Americans and even black immigrants have a unifying factor right which is uh the sort of shameful history of racism in this country and the slavery jim crow but also in a lot in a a much more purely pragmatic sense is that it is on the front of people's minds right like even if you immigrate to this country with no understanding and this was actually borne out in your surveys as well where you you know you ask people well do do black people have it bad here in the United States, basically? And, you know, the high percentage, very high percentage yeah. say yes, you know? So, so even like somebody coming right off the boat yeah. knows that, you know? Um, and that, that can lead to like a sense of, all right, well, you know, since we are a group and we need to make sure that like, that we're protected, right? Like, so in South Carolina, um, the idea is always like, we're not voting for the Democrats, we're voting for protection against the mm-hmm. GOP. And so, but, you know, with Asian Americans, is it, is it possible really to get that type of cohesion? Because, you know, there, there is no unifying history here, right? Like, unless you talk about abstract things like the Chinese Exclusion Act or, you know, Vincent Chin or, um, you know, like, the, and yeah. most people don't know what those things are, you know? Um, so, so how, 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 do, how have people in the past sort of tried to build this identity or tried to build a political coalition? Well, I think, I think um, well, probably somebody who, uh, you know, works for a community-based organization is probably better suited to, to sure. giving, giving sort of the nuts and bolts of that. But I think it's a combination of really speaking to the fact that uh, there are needs that go unrecognized and unmet uh, in in many, many uh, Asian American communities all over. And then there are also like everyday experiences uh, that Asian Americans feel, you know, as, as Asians, as Koreans, as immigrants, um, that, that just don't add up to having the same kind of opportunities or being allowed to lead your daily life with the illusion that the United States is a colorblind country that really start, you know, um, raising important questions about, you know, whether this is just kind of a demographic term, you know, used for the kind of convenient purposes of just tabulating people, or whether there's some sort of shared uh, kind of commonality, shared interest. So one of the things that we ask in our survey is a question about whether or not uh, Asian Americans feel a sense of linked fate. And what we mean by that in our question is, 
Do you think what happens to other Asians in this country generally affects what happens in your life? It's one of the most powerful ways uh, that political scientists have demonstrated sort of the cohesiveness of the African-American community. Yeah. Um, and for Asian Americans, you know, a fairly significant number actually do believe, as diverse as the community is, they believe that the fate of, of, of their, their own life is, you know, tightly linked to the fate of other Asian Americans. And I think, you know, once you have that, then you can start talking about organizing together as a community and trying to represent some sense of kind of collective interest, you know, politically. Um, do you, like, I guess why not then, you know, why not then just say, all right, you know, these are the three things that you're interested in, which you said are, you know, healthcare, right, education, and jobs in the economy, right? And that it seems like you could, yeah. something like the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren campaign probably fits into like what Asian Americans would, would want on those three issues, according to the survey and the polling and the, and the efforts that, that you have done. Um, you know, like, like, and that racism and, and immigration are actually quite, are, they're, they're climbing because of Trump, but they've traditionally been low and that, you know, there's, maybe they'll continue to climb, but, you know, they, they perhaps will go regress back to where they were. Mm -hmm. Like, um, is there, like, is there, is that sort of the path forward, do you think, or is that a path forward, just sort of this understanding that, hey, A, like, you know, we have, we have linked fate, right? And, but Mm -hmm. B, like, maybe we can, champion universal programs that, uh, you know, would not just benefit us, right? Like, so an anti-racism thing, you can just say would, oh, well, that only benefits, you know, the people who are being racist against. But these universal programs, um, I don't know, it, like, it seems like that, given all of the data that I've inputted and, you know, from reading the book, that was sort of the thing that I spat out was like, oh, this would be the optimal way to go about it. But that also yeah. matches my politics. So I don't know, it, yeah. I could be, you know, very heavily pressing a thumb on the scale. So, so I, I think that would be really uh, important uh, with the with the addition that you also you also want to be you also want to have the infrastructure in place to respond to kind of the next Japanese internment or the next Vincent Chin event or the next time a global pandemic hits, which is attributed to you know China and persons of China's origin. So. Mm-hmm. You know, economics, uh, growth and jobs is great. Healthcare is great. You know, uh, access to education is great. You also want to have uh, or- an organizational basis to respond to the next time, like the precarity of being an immigrant-based group, which is still today, I think, heavily stereotyped by a sort of perpetual foreigner stereotype. The next time that, you know, rears its ugly face into, you know, racial violence against your community, I think you you have to be ready for that. Even <laughs> even if you know on the day to day, most people don't think of racial justice as issue one. How scared are people right now of the sort of of uh, of your respondents? Like how how worried were they of of the sort of hate crime stuff that's happening around the coronavirus? Like how how front of mind was it for them? Well, I mean, so, uh, I mean, uh, Pew did a great uh, survey back in in June of of this year, and the percentage of Asian Americans who said that they had been microaggressed around since the coronavirus outbreak was the highest for all groups. So they they asked about whites, uh, Latinos, African Americans, and Asians. The percentage of Asian Americans who said that they'd been subject to um, like racial uh, slurs or, or somebody felt like 
um, uh, had accused them basically of spreading COVID was the, the highest. So, you know, I think, you know, COVID was a particular moment of high, you know, vulnerability. And in our surveys, I think we asked about um, the experiences of discrimination and microaggression and the numbers were, you know, close to 50% who who had experienced something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think yeah, it's I just have, I, that one is another one where I just have a hard time figuring it out. And I appreciate the data that, you know, is, mm-hmm. that comes out in these surveys, yeah. because, um, you know, I can tell from looking on Asian media, Twitter, which is all people who went to Ivy League schools generally, but like, um, <laughs> you know, they, and the, it's huge in their minds, you know, yeah. and they start yeah. initiatives and stuff like that. But I'm just like, I don't know, this is just like, maybe nobody else cares. But it, it does seem like, you know, people do care. Um, the, the This is my final question. This is like, you know, the million dollar question which is look the exit poll data is difficult to parse right and a lot of surveys have come out and a lot of things have come out but i think that the thing that we can confidently say and please correct me if i'm wrong but i think we can confidently say that if what you were expecting is that this long-term trend from the reagan model towards like sort of you know the woke young model or whatever right has took a huge leap forward because of trump right and that like what might take 10 years or 15 years of uh, progress with it, you know, within the towards a Democratic Party or shifting towards a Democratic Party should have taken a leap because of Trump, because of the you know China virus stuff, and because of the the you know he's just so divisive and lying all yeah. whatever all the things that are that were bad about Trump should have pushed Asian Americans further. Mm-hmm. Instead, I think the best case scenario for the Democrats is hope that it about stayed the same, you know, and that. Uh, most of the stuff show, seems to show a slight regression back towards towards the right. Um, did you have any ideas on why this happened? Like, you know, so like- I, yeah. So I, I think I think I don't disagree with with your characterization, but I would say um, there's a couple of other things going on. So I think um, I think uh, Asian Americans are woke in two other senses. One in terms of getting involved in politics. So starting in 2018 and also carrying forward in 2020, just the level of political engagement among Asian Americans has really hit unprecedented levels and not just in terms of voting, but also like in terms of participating in protest politics. So in some of the, like in our 2008 survey, I think only 3% of Asian Americans said they engaged in protest politics. And in this year's surveys, I'm getting numbers north of like 15%. Wow. I'm I'm Marge. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think they're getting woke in that sense. The other sense in which they're getting woke is especially among young AAPIs, they are really becoming very progressive in terms of their politics and they are aligning themselves with a lot of social movements. So not just Black Lives Matter, but, you know, Me Too around gun violence, you know, around, you know, um, environmental issues and so on. So one of the puzzles for me out of 2020 is not just that there's a little bit of backsliding towards AAPI's voting slightly more Republican, but the other puzzle is there's now this huge gap between where Asian Americans say they stand on a wide range of issues and how they're actually voting. Because if they were just voting their interests in politics, you should see numbers that are closer to 70 or 80% instead of 65%. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you and, think people are lying? Do you think people are lying? And like, uh, they're like single-ish, they actually become single-issue voters around things like affirmative action and stuff like that or law and order or whatever? Like, so, so, I mean, uh, uh, so my story on that is that's part of a general uh, 
issue with the American voter uh, today so broadly, not just specific yeah. to APIs. I think the country as a whole is pretty progressive, including white voters. Like if you ask them a wide range of issues, like, you know, they're, they're down with a big chunk of Bernie's agenda and AOC's agenda. Um, it's just that when it comes down to voting, I think there's just so much uh, that is performative. There's so much that's smoke and mirrors. That's so much that's drama that gets in the way of people voting their interests. And it's not, the, it's not that 2020 was the first year that we ever saw American voters not voting their interests. I think that's been true for a yeah. long period of time. But the gap between what they want out of politics and the fact that they seem to vote more out of their frustration that they're not getting that out of their politics is just getting wider and wider. So I think at some point, something's gonna have to give. Is that, is that happening within the Asian community as well? Because, you know, this is all anecdotal, but I, I'd say it's, a, you know, whatever one step higher than anecdotal is, but, you know, as me as a reporter spending a lot yeah. of time in these yeah. communities, you know, what I found is just this deep frustration with the Democrat party and that um, the sense like they're never going to do anything for us, you know? And so is yeah. there, yeah. is there like a, and, you know, I don't know as a, as a person, as an Asian yeah. person, I actually sympathize quite a deal with that where I just yeah. think, look, this and part of the reason why I think these labels are silly. It's just like, oh, I've never had anything done for me because I'm Asian. Yeah. I'm not asking for anything to have been done for me for being yeah. Asian, but as long as I'm going to be this thing, you know, like maybe you could, you know, tip your cap or something and say, hey, you know, we see you. Um, and that, uh, you know, that, that it seems like within those communities, and I'm talking mostly about like Chinese American communities, mm-hmm. you know, in New York City or he- here mm-hmm. in California, there is sort of this re- reactionary turn. And yeah. it, it is around this idea, look, uh, you give all the other groups stuff, you don't give us anything, you know, and by stuff meaning like, you know, whatever, like, you know, you at least yeah. talk about them and their struggle, yeah. you never, yeah. you don't see us. Um, is that part of it, do you think? Like, is that, is that factoring in at all? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, uh, I think it is part of a broader phenomenon, um, like a national phenomenon of frustration with both parties. So, I mean, in a way, uh, you know, the Republican Party has already had their day of reckoning. And, and that's resulted in, you know, sort of an extremist, you know, flank of the Republican Party, the Tea Party flank, basically, you know, successfully engineering a hostile takeover of the entire party, where if you look at the center of the party now, it's all the people who used to be the extremists in the party. And then now, you know, Trump is, you know, the titular head of the party. The Democratic Party hasn't really had that reckoning yet, but there's no way that it's going to avoid it because, you know, the the parties have been so, the the two-party system has been so unsuccessful in delivering what American voters want out of our politics for so long that I think it's just a matter of time before the Democratic Party has the same kind of rupture that the Republican Party has had. It doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to go full on, you know, AOC Bernie or, you know, or even more, you know, leftist than that. But I think something's going to have to give because I don't think the the left coalition is going to survive, uh, you know, uh, much longer just in the same way that the right coalition couldn't survive for that long. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. Maybe in the next, you know, 2022 seems like it'll be very instructive in figuring that out. Um, Okay, it's one o'clock, so you have to go. But um, yeah, thanks for being on the show. And this will be out sometime next week. Uh, Yeah, and to the listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, You can always get in contact with us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. 
And we'll be back. I'll be back with Andy and Tammy next week. Uh, talk about this and other things. Okay. Great. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll email you when this is up. Great. Thanks. Yeah, Appreciate bye. it. Yep. Bye.